Motherboard, proudly brought to you by Lidl's Loopy Loo, the new and extended baby range. Hello, I'm Avril Flynn and you're very welcome to the Motherboard podcast. October is Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness Month and today on a very special episode of Motherboard we are going to hear the stories from people who have been affected by this issue. The loss of a child is incredibly difficult to talk about. Sometimes people suffer in silence and today we want to break the silence and share with you the personal journey of our panellists. Please note that for some listeners they may find the following stories distressing so please be aware. Joining me in studio is Anne-Marie Murta, Anthony Casey and Specialist Fertility Counsellor Roisin Venables. Roisin, I'm going to go to you first. Thank you for joining me today. Good morning. You've cancelled many women going through these issues and shockingly it actually can affect up to one in four women in Ireland. That's correct, yeah. yeah. So that's a huge number of people that are affected. It's incredibly common, unfortunately, yeah. Nature is cruel sometimes. It really is, isn't it? And for a lot of women and couples and also men are affected by this issue as well. Absolutely. And they're probably not given the, I suppose, support or the notice that they actually need. You know, in the course of my work, the vast majority of the clients that I see are women. Um, But interestingly, when men do find their way into the counselling room, it's usually, uh, and I'm generalising here, it's usually much later on, maybe, you know, even years later when they're talking about something else and they might mention that they had a a loss of a child. And that's something Anthony will touch on on later. You know, you saw it. Yeah, I think I think men in general tend to go into uh, a preservation mode. Yeah, I think it's like a built in into them. That they're um, there to protect and they yeah, forget about themselves. You know, and your that. whole world is fall, falling apart and you're there to protect your wife. And, it, you know, if there is other children there and that's the role you, you initially kind of take over. And Roisin, it's so important, though, that the sport is there, not just for mums and dads, but for the whole family unit as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's it's a process. So you've got the initial uh, event, if you like. And then for, for women, you've got the physicality of it as well. It's a loss, but it's a trauma. Um, and trauma has that sort of rippling effect. It can ripple out into, you know, their partners, their other children, if they have family, friends, and it can affect so many different aspects of life. And I suppose the problem with grief is that it's not uh, a straight line Correct. It, and it affects everyone differently. Absolutely. And we'll hear that with our stories, how it can affect people differently. And Marie, you describe yourself as a proud and wonderful mother of six children, but only four are, are living on this earth at the, at the time. And That's you correct. had you your two beautiful children, Zach, who passed away in 2005 and Patrick, who passed away in 2016. Do you mind sharing with us your, your story? No, I don't, Avril, because I think it's really, really important that we share these stories to make people aware that this does happen and it is more prevalent than you think. Um, When I go back to 2005, it was January, um, I was 19 going on 20 weeks pregnant and um, I went to the hospital for a routine consultant's visit and we were starting, you know, sort of to get excited about thinking that everything is fine. Yeah, because, you know, I was almost at the halfway mark. And as the consultant ran the scanning probe over my belly, he turned to me and he said, I am so sorry, there is no heartbeat. Um, within 
that split second, my world came absolutely crashing down. Um, I was in complete denial. This doesn't happen at this stage. I had never heard of uh, a miscarriage at this late stage, you know, when you're ha- at the halfway point. And um, I, I, it was so much to take in, you know, and I was by myself. I had to wait for my husband to come and get me. Um, I was quite hysterical. And in total shock, I'm yeah, sure. In absolute total shock. Um, I suppose I cried and I cried and we were told to come back to the hospital in two days' time and I did and I had to go through an induction process and I had to give birth to this tiny, tiny uh, little baby boy who was absolutely perfect, you know. All his features were 100%, you know, little fingers, little toes, little nose. And, um, you know, he after, you know, he was brought to us and we spent about an hour with him and we said goodbye. And I went home empty. And five days later, you know, with the assistance of the supports in the hospital, uh, we went back and we brought him to the cemetery to bury him, you know, and it was just absolutely devastating, hugely lonely time. Yeah, and completely surreal because it really didn't feel that it was happening to me. And what sort of supports did you have at that at that, that time? You know, you, we were sent home with, with booklets and information, you know. I had to go through what every uh, woman goes through after giving birth. You know, my milk came in, my body had to recover. And, you know, I was... I didn't realise I would have to go through all that, you know, because I was only at a certain stage in my pregnancy. But no, I had to go through the normal processes that every woman has to go through when they're recovering after birth. Which must exacerbate the... It does. And you're highly, highly emotional. And I was completely distraught. And unfortunately for women who who lose their babies at that stage, you know, you're you're not past the stage where you can take your maternity leave. Which seems... Bizarre that you would still have to go back to work so quickly. Absolutely, yeah. So it was about seven or eight weeks and I had to go back to work. And now my employers at the time were fantastic and they gave me all the time I needed. I was in a, a customer facing role and they eased me back into it very gently. Um, and then we just had to start, you know, rebuilding our, our, our lives at the time, you know. And I think um, for me, my husband was upset, but I don't think at that point he was as devastated for, uh, as I was at that time so um, you know and we we went back to the hospital and we were told what went wrong and we just had to accept it and we were told there was no reason why we couldn't have another baby mm-hmm. and we were very lucky and we went on uh, 12 months later and had a very healthy baby girl and at that point we were in 2006 and we thought our family was complete and that pregnancy also must have been hugely stressful for you. Um, it having, was. Having it had. was. Thinking back at the time, it was. I, I, I was a, a full of anxiety and, and nerves and I don't think anything was going to, even passing that 20 week mark, you know, thinking, yes, you know, we're OK, we're past the danger zone as what we considered. Um, and then we had a healthy little girl in our arms, you know. 20 weeks further down the road and we thought we were we were done we were finished and uh, we were happy busy house busy house we were very happy with it with with our with our four under six at the time and fast forward sort of 10 years and um 
we found out we were pregnant again. Complete and utter surprise. Happy surprise. Very happy surprise. You know, our, our family was more or less half half rare at that point. And uh, we were all very, very, very excited. The prospect of having a small baby in the house again. So I suppose getting to the 20 week mark um, was really, really important. You know, I had a complete textbook pregnancy. I had no problems. I had a very, very happy and healthy baby boy on board and we just couldn't believe that we were going to be blessed with and all the scans were normal and everything was fine so um, my due date came and went uh, and that's when I started to get a little bit anxious but uh, so I went home and every other day I, I tried something to say uh, to naturally bring on labour bounced on my ball went for long walks ate pineapple you know we were just ready to meet this this little man and um, I was just coming up on a week overdue and uh, it was a Saturday night and it was the 13th of February and we were, uh, I, I was sat up late and I felt some pains coming on and I said to my husband, Paul, I said, oh, we're going to meet this guy in it's the next happening. 20. It's starting I, I definitely think. And I knew it was going to take a while because it had been 10 years since my body had laboured. So I was like a first time mum all, all over again. So... Uh, I got some sleep and we got up and we went shopping on the Sunday morning, which was Valentine's Day. And my husband joked only we could end up having a baby on Valentine's Day. Um, He's not really, um, as he calls Valentine's Day, the hallmark day. It's money making. So we had we we had joked, but we went off to the supermarket and we came back and I, I said to him, you know, I, I really wasn't happy with the baby's movements. I said, I haven't had a good wallop in a while, even though I was being distracted by these strong, slow uh, but contractions. Very contractions. Yeah, yeah. And um, so we had some lunch and I said, I'm ringing the hospital. And I rang them and I told them I was just a little bit, you know, concerned uh, about baby's movements, that he hadn't been as active because he was an extremely active baby on the inside. So we went in to the hospital um, and we were brought to a room and the midwife, we, a familiar face, we knew the midwife and uh, she started looking for a heartbeat uh, on a CTG, on a trace and she couldn't find one. And she, she gave us no indication that there was an issue. But uh, she left the room. She goes, I'm going to organise a scan. And I turned to Paul and I grabbed his hand and I said, she can't find a heartbeat. And... He said, don't be so ridiculous. You know, we just couldn't even contemplate what that was this to come. could possibly happen again. Yeah. So we were brought into the scanning room and we were asked not to look. And literally within five seconds, uh, those words came again. There's no heartbeat. Which and is just absolutely horrendous to think and, about. you know, we, we couldn't talk. I couldn't talk. And eventually my husband turned to someone else in the room and said, look again. And they shook their head and they said, no, we're really sorry. Um, Your baby's gone. And with that, I suppose I was absolutely hysterical. Um, I I screamed like any crazy woman would scream. Um, It was just the most devastating, heartbreaking moment of my entire life. If I thought... I was devastated when I had lost Zach to get to 41 weeks and to be told that your full term baby has died. Um, 
and it's true what they say, there are no words, you know, and we we spent a couple of hours. It, it seems like I, don't, I can't even remember what the time felt like, but we were actually in the hospital for a couple of hours and people had to come and talk to us to explain what our options were, which were very limited, you know, whether we stay in the hospital or we go home and come back in two days time. Um, Paul, honestly, I think at that split moment felt pieces, but he didn't do it in front of me he he actually left the hospital and went down outside onto the street and it was raining and he collapsed on the street with 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 the shock um we pulled ourselves together and we took ourselves home because we had to tell our children because you still had your kids at home that yeah, were excited you know, and expecting we had a 16 15 year old a 12 year old and a 10 year old that we needed to write this news to and I couldn't even think about it. I couldn't even speak in the car journey on the way home. And Paul has to be the bravest man I know because one by one, as as the, the, the children sensed that there was something wrong when we, we came back to the house, uh, they didn't know we had gone to the hospital. We didn't tell them. And one by one, he took them aside and gave them the devastating news that their brother um, had passed before he had jumped into this world. Um, and... The, uh, the rest, the next 24 hours were an absolute blur. But so. yet we did try to make what arrangements we could because there was more supports this time around. Uh, Felicon were a new charity. They were formed in 2006. So, you know, and the, they, they provide an awful lot of support to, especially to... So Felicon are the Irish stillbirth and, and in, ne- neonatal, neonatal death support. Yeah. yeah. So we... Um, I was very lucky. I didn't have to suffer the indignity of going back into the hospital two days later because uh, I on the Monday the shock had stopped my contractions. But slowly over the Monday, the course of the fifteenth of February, labour had started to kick off. It again. started, yeah. And by eleven p.m. that night, um, as I had sat in silence all day, and and I took what was coming, you know, in terms of pain and contractions, and I said nothing to nobody because I was still deeply, deeply in shock. I was holding on to my bump, willing it to move, absolutely willing it to move. You know, this hoping that it would all just be a horrible help. dream. Yeah, you know, because it really was a nightmare situation. So we made our way to the hospital just before midnight, and um, and I knew at that point if there was one last thing I could do for my baby was to give him the best entrance into the world as as I could. And to a certain extent, we kept my birth plan together, you know, in terms of what I had wanted during delivery, um, like aromatherapy and music playing and stuff like that. So so we held on to those small, some of the small little things um, and the hospital made me as comfortable as and, and as pain free as possible. Um, and within sort of two and a half to three hours, Patrick was born at 23 minutes past two in the morning. Um, he was the most perfect, perfect look, looking baby I ever laid eyes on. But the initial um, moment was the deafening silence, you know, and we, we were still in the delivery wing of the hospital. We heard babies crying, but our baby arrived and it was it was the deafening silence, which was very and Usually hard. when you give birth, there's so many noises, not yeah. least the baby crying, but also, you know, there's so much else going on. And, you know, the fact that there was just the, the quietness when Patrick made yeah. his entrance. It, it was that was really difficult. Um, it took me, you know, a, a 
couple of minutes to sort of gather myself after he after the delivery because um, you know as any woman knows who, who gives birth to a full term baby you know there is a certain element of your body going into shock after you know delivering and Patrick was £9.3 so he was quite a big baby He's a fine size baby He sure was and um, so when I eventually sort of I, I suppose I had to be brave to, to look at him and, and the minute I did he, I, I looked at him and he was just like one of his sisters when she was born and I instantly, it was just love at first sight. And when I took him up in my arms, it was, I didn't feel any of that pain in that moment. It um, felt like the total right thing. It, it felt like the total right thing. Yes, I was holding him and again, I was willing him to just take a breath or to open his eyes. But that they could, uh, that they could have made a mistake. And yeah, but obviously that wasn't going to happen. Um, and then we, so I suppose after the delivery, we were moved to a, a private room in a quiet place in the hospital and he he stayed with us. We, we kept Patrick with us. He was placed in a, in a cool cot, um, to, to, to keep him cool. Now, cool cot is, is, is an insert for your, for a crib or a Moses basket, which maintains a cool temperature for your baby's body to, to preserve. So you have, them. you have time with them. So you have time with them. Um, so we were able to, um, I suppose when it came to, the, the next morning, um, there was a queue of people outside the door, you know, who needed to talk to us, who needed to give us information. Um, I had to have some extensive blood tests done and there were, there were certain formalities that needed to be done. And I didn't want to talk to any of these people. And I kept a lot of them outside the door until I was ready. But the horrible truth for us was we really didn't need any help because we had done this all before. before. We knew what we had to do, except this time around, we were very, very lucky. We were going to bring our baby home with us. And had that option been given to you prior to that or was that something that you had felt very strongly about yourself? It was definitely something I had felt strongly about. Um, You know, I, I, I couldn't have ever imagined leaving him behind uh, walking out of that hospital and leaving. It was never going to be an option. Um, we had done a little bit of research on the Monday before he was born, so we knew we were going to have this option. And um, so as quickly as possible, we we made the arrangements with the necessary people and we brought Patrick home at four o'clock on that afternoon. Which is entirely bittersweet, beautiful to bring your son home, but not in any way the circumstances that you yeah, had hoped or I wished for. I still remember for. walking in the front door with him in my arms and um, I could hear people in the back of the house, in the kitchen. And I think everybody, we were all as nervous as each other because nobody knew what to do. And myself and Paul took Patrick to our bedroom and we laid him out in his crib. Um, and... I remember placing him in his crib and going to the kitchen and one by one, Paul took the children to meet their brother. Um, and there was friends of ours in the house who were there to, to support us through this. And and then I had to, I sat there and I just completely, the empty arms nearly, you know, really I thought was going to, to push me over the edge. Now we were very, very lucky 
we got to keep Patrick at home for three days. His funeral was on the Friday. Um, and in those three days, we made so many memories, you know, as, I, a, fam- as, a, as a family. family. And people might find that very strange to hear, but it was the most natural thing in the world to do. Um, I walked around the house with him in my arms. I read a book to him. I sang to him. I kissed every inch of him. I changed his clothes. You know, it was for me, it was all such a natural thing. My motherly instincts had kicked in. The only difference was my child was not alive. So Anne-Marie, now we come to the part where you're going to have to say goodbye to Patrick. Can you talk me through that? The morning uh, of Patrick's funeral, we were very lucky. We had a priest who was a good friend of the family. And in actual fact, he had done um, the prayers over Zach's grave. Uh, We made a different decision this this time around. We decided to have Patrick cremated uh, because we had felt tied to a cemetery for 10 years, every birthday, every Mother's Day, every Father's Day, every Christmas, you know, hail, rain or snow. We, we made that journey to the cemetery. Um, we felt with, I suppose, having Patrick cremated that we could bring him home again when, when the time was right. Um, it's not an easy task saying laying your baby into that little white casket, kissing them and then having to close it. Now, we kept the casket in a spare room um, and left it until the very last minute. Uh, Paul couldn't be with me when we closed the casket. He couldn't. Um, I was surrounded uh, by people who who care about us. Um, When, during that particular moment um, and I have to respect the fact that it was was all too much for Paul and then we made our way um, we did bring Patrick to the church um, because the priest felt at the time that was the right thing to do because w- w- there was a community of schools and everything uh, around us uh, and a community who just wanted to support, you support and us and, and wrap their arms around us and we did and um, and it was beautiful. We gave him a lovely send off with beautiful lullabies. And um, and I suppose for us, it was important for me for the religious element in it, too, because I needed to believe in something and I needed to believe that there was something there and that Patrick had gone to a better place. And uh, that's 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 how um, we ultimately said goodbye. And Anne-Marie, for you, what? specific coping mechanisms do you think that somebody at home could employ or what support mechanisms did you find that were the most important in trying to move forward and cope? Yeah. Um, as I said before, it, it's the empty arms syndrome, as they call it, is 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 the most horrendous feeling in the world. Um, I cried for weeks on end uncontrollably, but surprisingly, I was extremely protected by my hormones as, you know, as as your body um, is still adjusting to, to normal after a pregnancy. Um, in the first, in the early weeks, um, people called, they gave us, brought us dinner. They made sure, you know, um, I had someone to come in and clean the house. When Paul went back to work, that there was someone there every morning to maybe just bring me out for a cup of coffee or something just to, because otherwise I probably wouldn't have ever gotten out of the bed. But I knew I had to um, look after my other children 
and sort of life had to return to some sort of normal for them. You know, life was never going to be normal as it was before, but it did. But to try and find a new sort of balance or routine. Yeah. And I found it very difficult. I suppose there there was a 10 week gap between Patrick being born and returning to the hospital to find out what went wrong. And those 10 weeks and I felt I couldn't move past what had happened until we those 10 weeks had passed and we had that ultimate appointment. And then it was all about I needed focus. I needed something. My life needed purpose. Although I was a mother to four beautiful children, I still needed a purpose. And I had to make sure that that Patrick was involved in this purpose, too. Um, I availed of the mental health services that were um, offered to me at the time. Uh, I regularly saw a psychiatrist. But ultimately, the impact on my children as well was um, was was very disturbing in some respects. So um, they attended play therapy, which was very, very important for them because if I thought my confidence had taken a knock and I was suffering anxiety, they were too. They had lost their sibling. So um, we, we, we sought out, we spoke to several people, you know, and, and, and uh, to see what was suitable for our children individually because being at such difficult ages, you know, we had the preteens and we had the teens, you tend to worry an awful lot, um, you know, what could push them over the edge. So the two older teenagers went for uh, some one-on-one counselling and that was provided by First Light and then Phalacon, um, they provided extensive play therapy for the younger two. And slowly but surely, I saw little glimpse of them come back. A little bit of kind of hope yeah. and uh, and cope for them to be able to cope with to an cope. unreal situation for them. Absolutely. And as as I saw them, I suppose, improving, that helped me greatly as well, you know, and but it was really important. Um and then obviously I had to be very conscious of Paul. Paul had been my rock. He looked after everything. He made sure, you know, everything kept going. You know, he he was he was the train that that kept the whole family. But he needs support as yeah, well. But he did. So we attended the monthly support meetings that that Felicon, uh run as well, and it was an open, safe space to talk about our experience and how we were feeling, and it was. Mostly important that we met other parents in the same position because it didn't feel like it was just our world crashing down and that we could all share our stories about our babies and help each other um, to try come to terms with what had happened. And Ro- and Roisin, just to finish on that, yeah. trying to, as Anne-Marie said, you're trying to create support networks, not just for mums and dads, but for families. Yeah. You must see that in your work as well, that it's so important that you find appropriate therapy for whomever needs it. Yeah, yeah, obviously I, I would advocate for it, but, you know, it isn't a one size fits all. And it's lovely to hear that, you know, in, in your case, Anne-Marie, that you were able to avail of different mental health services um, and particularly where other children are involved. It's appropriate, um, it's sort of age appropriate, language appropriate and time appropriate because somebody might be ready for therapy straight away. Somebody might not be ready for therapy for months or years afterwards. They might only be ready for a hug. Um, but, you know, in, in, the, in the larger scheme of things, uh, you know, take a note of what's available and if and when you feel 
that that's something that you want to avail of, um, then go with it. When you experience a bereavement like that, it's such a horrible, distressing time. You naturally almost want to run away from it. But the way of managing and coping it, coping with it is to actually sit with it, to sit with the pain. Which is incredibly difficult is, to do. And it's counterintuitive. Yeah. Um, so it's not easy. Uh, and having supports with family, with friends, with uh, mental health uh, uh, supports is is just incredibly important. And as I'll be mentioning later, we'll have a full list of supports up on the Family Friendly HQ website. We're going to take a quick break now, but coming up in the second half of the show, Anthony Casey will be telling us his story and we'll be talking about how important it is for men in this situation to speak out and seek support. Motherboard, proudly brought to you by Lidl's Loopy Loo, the new and extended baby range. Welcome back to part two of our Motherboard podcast. Anthony, once again, thank you so much for being with us today and sharing your journey. Anthony, would you mind sharing with us Ellen's story? No problem, yeah. Um, myself and my wife, Roisin, we had two beautiful boys at the time who were six and four. And we made a conscious decision that we were going to try for another baby. Um, and we were lucky enough to get pregnant again. Um, we had... Issues with Aaron and Dara on their on Roshin's pregnancies, they were quite difficult, both of them. Um, so we were being watched kind of fairly closely by the hospital. You know, they told us they'd give us extra scans. So lots of appointments. And lots of appointments. Um, and we made a conscious decision ourselves that we wouldn't find out um, whether it was a girl or boy. We'd have a surprise this time. So things were, were moving along. And we went and had one scan. It was a quite late scan. I think she was over 30 weeks. And the girl that was doing the scan kind of didn't really say much, but kind of started off with two questions. And the two questions were, do you smoke? And Roisin said, no. And do you have high blood pressure? And she said, again, she said, no. But quite jarring questions. Yeah, we were, we were kind of thrown a little bit. So we kind of said, well, why did you ask those questions at the start? And she said, oh, like the, the presenter looks quite aged, quite old, calcifications on it. And, you know, I suppose it means something to her, but it doesn't really mean anything to And a, no, a no real explanation given. Which no, is, she just said everything is fine and, and kind of, you know, moved on, go, move on. Good luck and hope everything goes well. And, you know, so we, we kind of we were still in the hospital and we were, God, you know, we're not happy with this. Like, And so we kind of eventually got a doctor to speak to us. And he kind of dismissed. He said, no, no, everything is fine. You know, sure. You'll be coming in in uh, the 16th of April for a section, planned section. And so very soon after that. Yeah, you know. So he said, don't be worrying. You know, you, everything is fine. Um, so it was fine. So the week um, of the section, we had a, an appointment with the doctor again on the Monday. We went in to see her. And she could tell that Roisin was quite distressed about everything, really. And I, I was kind of saying, well, you know, can my baby die at this stage? Or can, you know, can you say if anything goes wrong now, can you get her in quick enough to save her? Your baby's not going to die. You're fine. Everything's fine. Don't be worrying. She says, look, I'll send you over to the emergency department. They'll give you a quick scan and a trace and put your mind at ease. And OK, so we went over there. They put her on a trace. They said, no, everything's fine, fine, you know, you'll be hours waiting on to see a doctor, just go home. So we just went home. 
the next morning I got up and it was Easter time so I was taking the boys to Easter camp and Roisin said there wasn't much movement and I said but okay. you had your trace and had been had a trace we, so. you know literally hours previous we'd been in the hospital and uh, she said no I'm a bit worried I said well look we'll just go back down and she said no no she said they'll think we're crazy we're mad we can't go back down there so I said look I'll drop the kids off and I'll come back and she said okay so I dropped the kids off I came back I said I have a puncture now in the car so I've got to get that fixed and she said okay she said look I'm going to ring the hospital you go get the car sorted and come back and then we'll decide what we're going to do. So she rang the hospital and they said, no, you're crazy, you're mad. What do you think? You're, you know, you're, you're scat, you're being, you're in next week for, you know, for your section. Drink cold water, you know, coffee, tea, whatever, go for a walk. And um, she said, okay. So at that stage I'd come back and she said, look, I've done all this hot cold water thing and there's still nothing happening. She said, I'll, I'll go in. So I said, okay. He says, look, I'll drop you in and I'll go pick up the lads. Give me a ring and I'll collect you. And that's how flippant it was. You know, we were thinking, it's just a matter of she'll go in, they'll tell her. I'll pick her up shortly and everything will be fine. Everything will be fine. So I picked up the two lads and there's a park quite close to the school. Brought them to the park and I literally had just walked in the gates of the park and I got the phone call. Get down here now. And I says, what's wrong? Um, just get down here now. They can't find a heartbeat. Get down here now. So she hung up. I'm fighting with the two boys to get them out of the park. Because you're just only just in into it, yeah. Eventually got them into the car and I'm I'm at that stage I'm making calls to try and get someone to mind the children. And boys. in total shock and panic, I and imagine. Yeah, at that confusion. stage my whole world is upside down. So I got through to my sister-in-law who works in town and I said, Yo, can you take the kids? And she said, yeah, what's wrong? I said, look, there's a problem. I just need you to look after the kids. I need to get into the hospital. Yeah, sure. So eventually I, I found her after some time because I was all over the place. Which is totally understandable in those circumstances. Yeah. How would you be otherwise? <clears throat> I got a second phone call from Roisin saying that our baby was dead. Um to get here now so I got the children looked after and I remember running up to the hospital as quickly as I could and they brought me into the cubicle and Roisin was sitting there and it was all kind of surreal uh, Roisin was in utter, utter shock and we sat down on the I sat down beside her put my arm around her and doctor came in and he said um, I'm sorry Mr Case your baby's dead so you're, you're you're listening to him, but you're it's it's not. It's like an out of body experience. I you're not taking I it imagine. in, you know. You, what, you know, have you done a scan? No, no, sorry, we've we've done all that. She's dead. And again, then they start talking that you still have to. Yeah. So go through everything. What would you like to do now? And I, what do I want to do now? It's you know, uh, we'll go home. Let's go home. So we got home. And when we got home, we thought, you know, what happens now? I said, I don't know what happens now. I mean, what do I don't know. What are we going to do? I don't know. Maybe we'll ring the hospital. I said, no, she looked, they're not going to tell us over the phone. Look, maybe we'll just go back into the hospital. We'll talk to them, our options, and then we'll take it from there. Okay. 
we went back into the hospital. At that stage, they just kept us in. They said, no, look, you really need to stay in now at this stage. So like that, they gave us a private room and went through our options. And it, it seems kind of really cruel, your options, you know. It's like, you know, picking out a puppy or something, you know. Yeah. You can have a black one or a white one or, a, yeah. you know, and you're kind of going, well, you know, what options do we have? Which one is dead? And well, the options were you can have her naturally or you can have a cesarean section. So Roisin bravely, I suppose, decided, no, I want to have her naturally. So they give her, they give you tablets, obviously, to induce to bring on the pregnancy. So they gave her the tablets that night. And the next afternoon, we were ready to go down to the delivery suite. And, and like uh, Marie's story, you go down to the delivery suite like with everybody else. And hearing and hearing the, the crying babies, babies cry. and the screams and the roars and the, the usual the, the throes of labour. Um, and I was sitting there, and Roshan always said that Ellen was quite good to her. You know, she she kind of slipped out fairly easy, and there wasn't too much pain. And but like that, she she's 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 just there. And as I say, we didn't know. It was girl or boy, and the midwife said to me, um, "Oh, you know, would you like to know what your child is?" And I said, "Yes, I would." Yeah, I said, "Oh, you've a little girl." And at that stage, I just kind of sank into the chair, and I thought, "How can how can someone be how can anybody be so cruel that you'd I've After lost two, two boys, boys, and not bad enough, my baby's dead, but it's a baby girl, and you know." She handed her to me at that stage and I brought her over and we, we cleaned her up a little bit and and we put her in Roisin's arms and like that. It's a, it's a deafening silence, absolute deafening silence. Where it should be all of the nice sounds of yeah. little coon, maybe and, you um, don't have that. It's it's instant love. It's, you know, the love you feel for all your children when, they, when they're delivered is unconditional. You know, it's, it's just there. But it's it's um, very hard. Yeah, when when Ellen died, you know, we already had two boys, and you know, it was absolutely the worst day of my life when she, when we lost Ellen. It's 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 an experience that it's very hard to put into words. Um, I don't think anyone can really ever explain it properly how you feel inside. Um, it's hugely important, I think, though that. Men are not forget forgotten about in this situation. I think the the overwhelming part of a man is that it's nearly an, an inbuilt in in them that they they're the protector. It nearly goes back to the caveman, where they feel I have to protect my children. I have to protect my wife. My wife's in pieces. My world is in pieces. But yet, I got to stand up and I got to deal with this. I got to organize funerals. I've got to organize everything sometimes to the neglect of yourself oh completely completely um and i mean this as i say it's, it's a mechanism inside you that it, that, that just clicks pu- in almost pushes you on and pushes you forward yeah it's like a crisis moment where it just you just you're the forest service you know the house is on fire and you're running in and what supports did you have at this time what services helped you i was very skeptical about um the services that were available to me. So, you know, I was, ah, you know, I was kind of old fashioned, I suppose, in that way. 
But my wife kind of said, no, look, there's a meeting on. Ellen, Ellen died on the 16th of April uh, 2014. Two weeks later, there was a Failicon session uh, m- meeting. And my wife of said, parents who've been parents through similar have, have loss. lost children. And she said, look, will we go? And I kind of went, right, OK, look, I'll go. I'll go. But I, I was kind of, I won't say dragged along, but I, I kind of said. Maybe going as more of a support to your wife. Yeah, then. I was thinking, you know, wife needs it. Let's go. Let's go and have a look. And I, I think for the first part of the meeting, I sat there and I was completely speechless. I couldn't talk. I just, I was completely devastated. I was surrounded by maybe 10, 12 people who had the same situation as me and I was just speechless. I was glued to the chair and speechless. I actually felt sick and as the meeting went on I actually started talking and getting involved and having the conversations and telling Ellen's story and leaving the meeting I I felt a little bit better. I felt... That you were glad that you'd, yeah, you'd reached out and gone. You know... Yeah, you know, it was a situation where I managed to get a little few things off my chest. And I know for you, one of the amazing thoughts you had at the time was that you wanted to remember Alan in, in a very specific way to actually yeah. have a, a something it's concrete. F- it's to funny. It's funny how your body. mind, how your mind thinks at the time, because you, everything is a hundred miles an hour, everything. And you're you're thinking ahead. You're thinking, what am I going to do? What's this? How am I, how am I going to tell the kids? Everything goes through your mind at a hundred miles an hour. For some reason, what popped into my head was, um, I'd love her handprints in clay. So actually, I, cast as a cast piece, of in, in a piece so of clay. Because I'd, I'd had the boys done in Ernest's. So <laughs> I, I I rang Ernest's looking for clay, and they couldn't help me. And I just happened to Google somebody. And her name was Jenny from Little Imprints. And I said, look, you'll, you'll probably think I'm crazy, but look, this is the situation I'm in. Can you help me? And she said, uh, I'll be in. I'll be in a quarter to six, she said. I'll ring you when I'm downstairs. And she rang quarter to six. I went down to her. And uh, I said, pleased to meet you. Thank you so much for doing this for me. She said, look, no problem. She said, let's get this done for you, um, you know. We'll, so do she, the, we'll do the formalities cast, later. She cast Alan's... Yeah, and she came up to the room and uh, she cast uh, one, two, three, four sets. One for each of her parents, her brother, our two brothers and ourselves. And we have them today. And, and I'm sure it's the treasured. most precious oh, thing treasured. that you have. And amazingly, Anthony, what you've gone on to do is actually help other families and actually this is something that you're you do with alongside Velico and actually yeah, help other when families I, when to I do felt this that I was at a stage where I could give something back I approached Mary from Velicon I said look Mary I want to show you something and she said why don't you show me and I said I brought them into her I said look this is what I have and Mary was just blown away that well, it's yeah this I is can just only imagine. I would give anything for them and she said can we put this together and I said, I'm sure we can. I said, I really think we can. So we contacted Little Imprints, Jenny. And we've made an agreement with Jenny that if, if Jenny gave us the clay, myself and Mary would go take the prints, give the clay back to, back to Jenny, and Jenny would do the, the, casting. the casting and the 
paint and you know but it means that you're actually helping families to yeah. have something yeah. physical yeah. in a 3D to say yeah. look your little person was here yeah. and which Their I, which I just think existed. is amazing yes yeah. which is and as well as that I, I think by me going in it's a or, or Mary going in or we have we have a couple of us now that actually do it um, I mean I'm four over four years down the track at this stage I think families see oh hang on a minute this guy is functioning and also to see a dad, you know, um, and, and he's a dad, and he, and he works, and he, and you do this as well, and you know, because when it happens to you, you, you think you'll never function. I'll, I'll I'll never go to work. I'll never be able to do anything again. So I think it gives them a little bit of light. So it's so in a way that know, in honor of Alan, you've been able to support other yeah, families and dads yeah, with yeah. that. And Anthony, that's an amazing part of your coping strategy. What advice would you have to other dads, other men who might be going through this or might go through this in helping them cope and um, move forward with their lives? Yeah, I, I think you need to rely heavily on your friends, family, um, and obviously the, the likes of Felicon and the likes of. Um, mm. It's important that you have friends that you can t- you can actually speak to, you know, without being in the company of your wife or your children or it, it's, you know, even if it's just going down for a coffee with your best mate, you know, more than most people that you talk about, all they want to talk about is their, is their child that's died. And all you really need, not all you really need, but one of the most important things you need is that someone will actually listen to you. And did you find that sometimes people would avoid you or not ask? Yeah, I mean, you know, you unfortunately, I, th- I think it's a fear that people have. I don't think they do it intentionally, but it's, it's a fear when they see you, they will cross the street. So rather than say the wrong thing, they say nothing. nothing. Which is the worst ever. That can happen to you because you, you feel at that stage, you feel isolated enough, I'm oh, sure. You feel Anne-Marie, have you found that to be the same? That yeah, absolutely. Just... The avoidance of people is, is is does hurt and it hurt more than I expected. You know, um, acknowledgement is more important than avoidance and you don't have to say anything, a simple hug, handshake, arm around you. And as Anthony was saying, you do need to talk about your baby. You need to say their name because that's all you have left. And given any opportunity as a bereaved parent, you will speak about your children purely because a lot of people don't like to talk about it because they're uncomfortable with the situation. You know, and my advice to anybody who has a friend who's bereaved is, you know, let let the bereaved parent talk. It's so, so important. Let them. And, and don't forget to mention their baby's name. And that's, I mean, that's such a lovely way to, I think, to honour the people that we've lost and the babies that we've lost is to actually give that advice to say, how are you? Can you tell me about your little person and say their name, whoever that is? Absolutely. And as the years sort of roll into one another, you know, and further down the road and your babies are talked about less and less, you know, just even a simple acknowledgement, say from even close friends and families, you know, around the anniversary or birthday, you know, just say. Even a text message. A simple text message, you know, I'm thinking of you or a happy birthday in the stars, you know, and the baby's name. 
And I so, said, so important. And that would mean the world. And Moshin, you must see that as well. That yeah. you see everyone else moves on, but the loss is still a huge part of, yeah. of everyone's daily life. Yeah. And acknowledgement is part of that support. I think that's a really important word. Acknowledgement is really important. And to normalise it, because it, it this is not the way it's supposed to be. Children are not supposed to die before their parents. But it happens. So if you acknowledge it and you normalise it, and as Anne-Marie said, you know, even a little text, even, even just a hug, even just an X or a heart, something like that, it's important. And, you know, if you find yourself in a position where you do feel isolated or you don't feel like you're able to uh, let out what you are holding inside, find somebody to talk to, find a friend, find a, a stranger at a bus stop, find a, a mental health mental health professional, find somebody and talk to them. We're at Vailicon as well. Um, we're very open to if men want to want to call in to the office, so it's not exclu- it's, it's not, not exclusive. No, I mean if they want to call into the office, the office has my number. They'll give them my number if they want to speak to me directly. That's not a problem. Which is an amazing thing I've to offer to and many, support. Many a, a parent or many a, you know. And on that note, I just want to thank Anthony, Anne Marie, and Roisin for joining me today, and for sharing your beautiful stories about your children with us. Um, if you've miscarried or if you've lost a child, we want to know that you're not alone. There are support groups and services available nationwide, and as I've mentioned previously, we're going to have a full list of these support services on the Family Friendly HQ website. Lastly, and very importantly, in acknowledgement, we want to dedicate this podcast to the memory of Ellen, of Patrick and of Zach and of all of the other children that we're thinking of. Take care. Motherboard, proudly brought to you by Lidl's Loopy Lou, the new and extended baby range. <laughs>